Well, guys, I invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We come this morning as we continue in our series through the top three sixteens of the Bible. Again, not ranking them because they're all inspired by God, but we will do them in canonical order, starting in the beginning of the Bible, going to the end. And today we come to John 3.16, the verse that inspired the whole series. So I'm going to read together for us uh, verses 9 through 21. I'll invite you, if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. John chapter 3, we'll start with verse 9 and go to verse 21. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Nicodemus said to him, speaking to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already." Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the mighty words of Jesus. And we ask that the Holy Spirit now would take these words and open them up to us. We ask, Lord, that you would write your truth upon our hearts Stamp them upon our lives. You be our teacher today, Lord. Show us great things from your word. And may we see you and worship you through the preaching and hearing of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today we come to the most well-known and well-beloved verse 
in the Bible. Certainly the greatest, 316 of them all. And this verse pairs beautifully with the first Sunday of Advent, the first day of the new Christian year. Advent is about the coming of the Savior, the arrival of God's Messiah. The first advent of Jesus can be called the advent of love. And it was the advent of love, God's love, embodied in the person of Jesus, His Son, that made all things new. And so it is most fitting that the first Sunday of Advent, the first day of the new Christian year, aligns with this next 316 in our series. This morning as we look together at John 316, and as we consider the advent of God's love embodied in Jesus Christ, I want us to see three aspects of that love in John 316. These three aspects will take us to the heart of John 3.16 and the true meaning of Advent. So let's look first at the scope of God's love, the extent of His love. How wide is God's love? How far does it reach? Who does it embrace? As we look at the first words of John 3:16, we see the first aspect of God's love. It is a worldwide love. Notice the beginning of the verse, "For God so loved the world." Now there are two words in this opening line that we need to focus on. And the first is the word "world." Now in the writings of John in particular, this word world has a wide variety of meanings. If you go to 1 John, I believe in the fourth chapter, John says that we know that the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. Now when he says the whole world is under the sway, the persuasion of the wicked one, Does he mean that all the Christians in the world are under the sway of the wicked one too? He said, well, no. Okay, it's not literally the whole world because the Christians, they're under the sway of the Holy Spirit. They're under the leadership of the Lord. They're not under the evil one. They're under Christ. They've been liberated. And so what John means is that the whole unbelieving world, the whole lost world is under the sway of the wicked one. He doesn't literally mean every single man, woman, and child. Sometimes world can mean the cosmos, the whole universe. God created the world. Or it can mean the earth. Sometimes it even means just the Roman Empire, because those guys believe they own the world, so our empire is the world. So the word world can have a lot of different meanings. And so what we want to know in John 3.16 is, what does world mean? And one of the things world means, most prominently for John, especially as Jesus is talking to a teacher of Israel, a leader of the Jewish people, he's telling Nicodemus, God so loved the world, and by that he means God loves all nations. 
not just the nation of Israel. God loves all peoples, not just the Jewish people. God's love is for the whole world, which means all the nations, the Jewish nation and all the other ones too. Israel plus the nations equals the world. Because that's how the Jewish mind in the first century understood. There's Jewish people and there's the Gentiles. There's us and there's everybody else. God's love is for the whole world. Or as the book of Revelation says, it's for every tribe in the world. Every language group in the world. Every people group in the world. Every nation in the world. All of the ancestries. All of the bloodlines. Every family tree. Every ethnicity. Every color. Every conceivable category you can put human beings in. God's love covers them all. It is boundless. It is unrestricted. It is a worldwide love. Sometimes when we call this all without distinction. All without distinction. It means when God is looking at the world and deciding who am I going to love, He doesn't pay one bit of attention to any of the intrinsic external characteristics and qualities and attributes of a person. Well, I'm going to love the people of this particular race and not that one. I'm going to love the people of this particular ancestry and not that one. Well, they have the right bloodline, so I'm more favorable to that blood than this blood, or that land to this land, or these people to that, or that language, or that people group. He doesn't pay one bit of attention to all those distinctions, those external distinctions. His love is a love without making distinction. It doesn't discriminate between its objects. It's all without making any distinctions in terms of our qualities and characteristics that might make us more favorable to God than them. It's a worldwide love without distinction or discrimination. That's what world means in the text. The second word we need to look at is the word so. For God so loved the world. Now the word so is tricky in English and it's tricky in Greek as well. The original language of the New Testament. Most people, I think, maybe most of you, think that this word so is an intensity word. God loved so much, so deeply, so passionately, so fully and overwhelmingly. Now, certainly, God's love is the most intensive love you could conceive of. It's the most explosive, passionate love that you could imagine. It's so vast and so deep and so boundless that it reaches to the ends of the earth. A love that cannot be diminished by your ongoing unworthiness of it. By your ongoing spurning of it. By your not living up to it. By your rejection of it. By your constant sinning day in and day out. It doesn't wane like ours. It's full and infinite and steady and stable. And we, our imperfection and our fickleness and our day-to-day back and forth. There are mood changes and our mess-ups and our faults and flaws and failures. They don't make God's love dwindle. Because it's not like our love. It's vast and full and it's explosive and it's vibrant and it's eternal and it's unchangeable. 
This is radically good news for sinners who do not deserve such love. God's love is intensive, to be sure. But this word, so, it's not an intensity word. It's not what John is emphasizing. This word, so, is actually a how word. It's the difference between how and how much. How much is an intensity word. How is a way of doing something word. And that's, that second sense is what this word means here. This word so means how has God loved? In what way has God loved? To make it clear, we could translate it like this. For God thus loved the world. Or God loved the world in this way or in this manner. God loved the world in the following way. And that leads us to ask, okay, well, if it's a how word, then what's the answer? How has God loved the world? How did God love the world? And the next line is the answer. For God thus loved the world. God loved the world in this manner, in the following way. Namely, that he gave his only son. How has God loved the world? He has given his son to the world. And so here, with this understanding of love, I want to draw out three things for us to see. Number one is that God's love is not primarily a feeling in this verse. It is primarily an action. Love is a verb that God does, not a noun that God feels. Love is how God acts toward the world towards us, towards you. God's love is an action. And what kind of action is it? It's the action of giving a gift. God's love for the world looks like a person who gives a gift to the world. And that means God's love is pure gift. When you hear God is love, think God is a pure gift. Giver, lavish in his generosity, overwhelming in his benevolence, unrestricted in his kind and generous and giving nature. God's love is pure gift, and because it's a gift, it's pure grace. And a gift is not a thing you work for and earn. A gift is just something that you get and receive and enjoy. And then you get the joy of getting to say thank you to another person instead of being proud. Oh, I've earned God's love. I've done something to make myself more favorable. No, God's love always is a pure gift. Unearned, undeserved, unmerited. We have no title to it, no right to it. We just get to receive it. Love is an action, and that action is giving freely. That's the first thing to see about this love. The second thing about this word, so loved, this action-oriented approach to love, the second thing to see is that Jesus is God's love on display. God loved the world in this way. He gave us a person. 
He gave the world a gift, and that gift isn't an object or a thing. It's a man. It's the man Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, born under the law, born to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. Jesus is God's love on display. If you want to know what love looks like, you don't have to do an abstract philosophical treatise or examination on the theoretical whatever about love. You don't have to do that. You just have to open the Gospels and watch a man open his mouth and speak to people that everyone else thought he had no business speaking to. It's to watch a man serve and heal and give. And the more the crowds pushed in on him and the more they wanted from him, the more energized he got. The closer he got to human need, the more his spirit was moved to meet those needs. For us, meeting people's needs can be rewarding, but it can also be draining and exhausting if we don't get a break. People keep needing from us and needing and needing and needing and the most generous person can give and give and give. But at some point we run out of resources. We need a break. And Jesus in the Gospels, he's giving and giving and giving and he's not exhausted by it. He gets energized by it. He is God's boundless love that we can't diminish on display in his boundless heart towards the unworthy, towards the ungodly, towards the needy, towards the broken and the lost. Jesus is that worldwide love on display, embodied in a person's mind and heart and will and life. The third thing to see about this love is that Jesus, who is the embodiment of that love, he came for the world. He did not come merely or simply for his own Jewish people that he loved dearly. He did not come merely for the lost nation of Israel, his fellow Jews. He came for all, all the world and all the nations. He is God's gift to the world. How has God loved the world? He's loved the world with a worldwide love, a love that is pure gift pure grace, a love that is embodied in a person, and a love that is for the world, for all nations and all peoples without distinction. This leads naturally into the next aspect of God's love. We've seen that it's a worldwide love. It is now, secondly, a saving love. How did God love the world? He gave His Son to and for the world. What did He give His Son to do for the world? And John 3.16 just rings with crystal clarity. I love a clear verse in the Bible. And this is one of the clearest. Any child in Sunday school can figure out the answer. What did Jesus come to do for the world? He came to save it to rescue it, to deliver it. And you see this in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, how? He gave His only Son. For what? So that whoever believes in Him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. He came to make it sure that there's no perishing and there's eternal life. That was the purpose he came to accomplish. And you can see this spelled out even clearer, even clearer unless in case there was any mistake in the next verse, John 3:17. For God did not send his world, his son into the world to condemn the world. And notice two different meanings of the word world there. The point we made earlier, he sent his son into the world, right? Into the world of humanity, into the physical earth to be among us, in, not to condemn the world, the people. Two different senses of world. So you've got to be tuned in to how the word world is being used. God did not send his son into the world to condemn that world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It wasn't a mission of judgment. It was a mission of salvation. To save people from perishing and to give them eternal life. Now, what does this perishing look like? What, what, what should we have in mind when we think, should not perish? What, what's the perishing we're being delivered from? What does that mean? What does that look like? And if we continue in the passage, we see spelled out for us in a summary way what it looks like. In verses 18 through 20. Verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So part of what it means to be perishing is to be condemned in your unbelief. You do not believe that Jesus is who God says he is, that he came to do what God says he came to do, and that he actually accomplished it. And he accomplished it for you, singular you. <laughs> you don't believe any of that. Now, you might, you might give the Sunday school answer, yes, I, this, that's true, and check that one off and get 100 on the exam. That's fine. I did that for years. I knew the right answers. But what did it mean to me? Nothing. There was no change. There was no love. There was nothing. So I can have intellectual, the right intellectual ideas in my head... But if it just stays in my head and doesn't grip the heart and change the heart and change the life, then it just stays up here. It's just unbelief. M mere mental belief is just unbelief. If it's all it is, it's just head stuff, just head knowledge, book learning. Well, the first thing it means to be perishing is to be condemned that is under the just judgment of God because we reject and refuse the only one who can rescue us. Condemned in unbelief. And it gets worse. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works or their deeds were evil. The second thing to be, that it means to be perishing, it means to be a lover of darkness and a hater of the light who will not come to the light. We love the darkness we're in. We don't want the lights to come on. We don't want to be rescued. We love our darkness. We hate the light because our deeds are deeds of darkness, and that's what we want.
We want our works, our sins to stay in the dark. We are perishing. And third, it means in verse 20 this, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works, his deeds should be exposed. We're condemned in unbelief. We love darkness and we hate the light and we refuse to come to the light. We are perishing and Jesus was sent to rescue people from this perishing condition. The only way to save a world like this, a perishing world like this, is by love. It's God's love that can melt that heart of stone. It's only God's love embodied in Jesus that can change that rebellious, God-hating, darkness-loving heart into a soft, believing heart that loves the light and wants to run into the light. It's love that does that. Love on display in Jesus. Love poured out through the Holy Spirit. A relentless love. A worldwide love. A saving love. Jesus is the mighty love of God in action, on the move, saving people from perishing in unbelief. What if we reworded John 3.16 like this? For Jesus so loved the world that he gave himself. Jesus so loved the world. Jesus loved the world in this way that he gave his very own self in life and in suffering and in death. He gave himself all that he is and all that he has to rescue people from perishing. That's God's ultimate love on display and on the move. And through him, we have eternal life. An unending life, an immortal life, a triumphant life, a life of victory, a life that cannot be quenched by the evil one, a life that is forever, a life that will endure even through death itself, a life that cannot be quenched by death, a life that cannot be refused us because it's been purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. And his blood has never once failed his people. It is a guarantee that those who are saved by this Jesus will have eternal life and they will not perish. You are kept by the power of God in the arms of an almighty Savior. And he says in this very gospel, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me and they follow me and I give them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand and they will live forever. I will even raise them from their graves on the last day and they will be with me to see my glory forever and ever. This is the saving love of God embodied in the perfect love of your Savior, Jesus. So we've seen now the extent of God's love. 
We see that the extent of God's love reaches all people without distinction in all nations of the whole world. And God demonstrates this love by giving His Son to be the Savior of the world. It's a worldwide love. It's a saving love. And now we come to the third and final aspect of this love in John 3.16. And to get at it, let's ask this question. We've seen the extent of God's love. Now, what is the intent of God's saving love? Well, the clue is in the question. It's, it's to save, right? It's to save. But who does God intend His Son to save? Now, our first guess, our natural answer to this question is to go back to 3.16 and to say the world or to say whoever, right? Or as the King James, whosoever. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever. But I want you to notice something that's staring us in the face in John 3.16. Notice the particularity of this love. John 3.16. Read it carefully. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We can't stop reading it, whoever. It's whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. Have you ever noticed the particularity of John 3.16? Yes, it's a worldwide love. And yes, it's a saving love. But third, it's a particular love. It's a love that extends to everybody. But it's not meant to save everybody. It's meant to save every believer. In fact, if you can read this in Greek... In the original language it was written in, there isn't a word in Greek here for whoever. It's supplied by the translators. But there's not a word that corresponds here to whoever. Rather, the word is all or every. And literally, we could translate it this way. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that every believer should not perish have everlasting life, eternal life. It's for all believers. God's love for the world means God sent Jesus to save every believer in the world. Not just every Jewish believer, but every believer, period. Without making any distinctions between who you are, who your family is, or where you come from, or what your color or race or whatever it is. It's a love without distinction, but it's not, a, it's not a saving love without exception. 
Without distinction means this nation and that nation isn't favored above the other. But all without exception would mean every single individual human being who's ever existed without exception. But there's no unbeliever who's, who's going to be in heaven. All the unbelievers are under condemnation, the text says. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, he said God is not opposed to sinners, only to unbelievers. And what he means is, of course God loves sinners. He loves you, doesn't he? He loves me, doesn't he? He, he saves sinners. The only people he's opposed to are the sinners who are also unbelievers. The ones who are under condemnation, as the text says, because they have not believed. God's love for the world means Jesus came to save every believer in the world, whoever believes. The cross is meant to save those who believe. It's not meant to save anybody else. So we can't say so-and-so was a good person or, well, God is love and so, you know, Jesus came to save the world, not condemn it. So, yeah, this person, you know, wasn't really a believer, never went to church, but I mean, they're probably in heaven. I mean, they were all right. I've seen worse. We, we, can't, we can't go there. We can't go there. The cross is only meant to save, to guarantee the salvation of the believers not the unbelievers. So there's a particularity in God's love, and that particularity calls us to repent and believe. To repent and believe. This Advent, Christian, I invite you to celebrate the rich and boundless love of God that extends to the ends of the earth welcoming whoever believes. You see, the gospel is supposed to go to every single human being. And whoever responds in faith, that's who the cross is meant to save. The one who responds in faith. And that's how you present the gospel. You look at a person and say, Jesus is a perfect Savior. And His blood guarantees the salvation of everyone it's intended to save. And who's it intended to save? Everyone who repents and believes. And you're invited to become that person. You're invited to repent and believe. It doesn't matter who you are or what color or where you're from. All without distinction means there's no external reason to think that you're not included. Repent and believe. It's for you. The gates to eternal life are open. Come. Come. Believe. Repent. And you will find Jesus to be a perfect Savior. And you will know a love that cannot be quenched. And that will rescue you from perishing and give you eternal life. But you have to repent and you have to believe or it's not for you. That's how you present the gospel. So that it's, it calls people to respond. To repent, to believe. This Advent, let us celebrate a rich and boundless love that truly does extend to the ends of the earth. And whoever you see, you can say, Jesus has died for sinners. He has purchased a sufficient atonement to cover all your sin. And it belongs to you if you repent and if you believe. 
Let's celebrate that love that cuts across all the divisions that we put in place. Let's rejoice in the saving power of Christ to rescue from the deepest, blackest pit of sin imaginable. There's no, there's no level or depth of lostness or sinning that He cannot save us from. No way we're beyond His reach. God's love reaches all the way down and invites the lowest of the low and the vilest of the vile to repent and believe and be saved by the blood of Christ as a free gift from the love of God today. And you can tell anybody that to their face and mean it exactly the way the Bible means it. But you have to include it's only meant to save those who repent and believe. It's not meant to save the rebel It's not meant to save those who persist in unbelief. It's only meant for those who bow the knee. And as we reflect on this first advent of God's love, the first coming of Christ, let us look with the eyes of faith to that second advent when Christ will return and this eternal life will be completed and we will have it in full when Christ comes back and we behold the second advent of love and we see our Savior and we see in His face the very glory of God's love itself, face to glorious face. This is what John 3.16 is about and this is what Advent is about. The first advent of God's love that gives us hope for that second coming that we long to see when our Savior Jesus appears and we know his love forever, face to face. Let's pray. Well, Father, we give you all glory for your boundless gift of love to us, a love that keeps on going and reaching, a love that can reach anyone on this world who will bow the knee to you. And we pray that you would embolden us to share that love and that message and that hope with friends and family members and even perfect strangers that we ourselves would walk in that same love that Jesus walked in. That we would give a clear gospel presentation and that we would be emboldened emboldened by the knowledge that you can reach anyone. That your love extends far and wide as far as the curse is found. And as we see you bringing your people to yourself, as we see people coming to know your love, may we ourselves come to know that love more and more deeply and to love Jesus more and more. And may we long for the day when our long-expected Jesus will come back to us and we will see that love in his piercing eyes. And we will know, we will know as we are fully known. What a glorious day that will be. In this Advent season, give us a taste and a longing to see Jesus and to pray for his return. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.